0: Good morning to you. It's just a joy to be back in New Beginnings, Um, and thank you for the privilege. We're going to begin to open up the book of James, which is a very small book. It's not a long book. And I'd like you to turn with me to chapter 1. We're only going to look at verse 1 today, uh, but we're going to read the first 17 verses. For context, and I want to encourage you uh, really to read this book uh, each day through the week. Just read uh, at least the first chapter uh, as the week unfolds, because there's some really wonderful stuff in this little epistle. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even though he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heaven the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting sh- shadows he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind a kind of first fruits of all he created let's just pray father we thank you so much for the opportunity of looking at your word we're really grateful that you've given us your word and we thank you father that it comes to us from your heart and we want to pray, O oh Lord, that you'd open our eyes just a little bit wider and open our minds too. help us to engage with your truth. Break it into very small pieces that we might begin to understand what actually it is you're saying to us. And as we begin to understand, we pray that our hearts might be stirred within us and move to praise you for the extraordinary grace and kindness that reaches out to us every day. You know, O Lord, that some of us have struggled in this week past. And perhaps, Father, we've come this morning and maybe we're not in the best of form. But we want to pray that in your kindness that each of us might find something from your word that would help us this morning and encourage us. So may your spirit come and shape us and make us into the people you desire us to be. We ask these things, Father. In the precious and the lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we have the joy of uh, looking at what is probably the oldest book in the New Testament. How many books in the New Testament? Come on, how many books in the New Testament? There's 27. And this is probably the oldest book in the New Testament. It's a very small book. There's just 108 verses in it. You can read it through in about 8 minutes. So actually, rather than asking you to read the first chapter uh, each morning this week, why don't you read the book? 8 minutes. Not a lot to give to God, is it? 8 minutes. Well, uh, what's really significant, 108 verses. Do you know how many commands there are in this book? There's actually 54 and when I was at school, that was one in every two verses, on average. 54 commands in 108 verses. James is a do-this, do-that kind of a book, which, if taken to heart, will impact us in very many major ways. Do you know, I just reminded, uh, a number of years ago, I was preaching on a text from that last a verse of the chapter which says religion that, our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and I preached on that verse and in the congregation we had a lovely Indian doctor and uh, his mum and dad were visiting him from India his father was a colonel in the Indian army but was on succumbent to the Gulf somewhere one of the Gulf states and we had a lovely meal with them. And then a couple of years later, the, the father was visiting again. And we again were invited to have a lovely meal. And uh, uh, this, uh, the Dr. David's mother was such a wonderful cook. We were so happy to be invited back for another meal. And we enjoyed that, that second meal. But he, the colonel took me aside and he said, I just want to tell you something. And I said, what's that? He said, well, I retired from my post in the army. And I went back to my home in India. And I joined uh, my my church. And as I was in my church, I realized that we didn't have any ministries for widows and orphans. That we weren't uh, listening to James, looking after widows and orphans, which is real religion. So, do you know something? I was so impacted by your sermon that I started a ministry in our church in India. And I thought, how wonderful was that? That God should take his word, plant it into the heart of this man, and that he would go back to India and give birth to a ministry because of something that happened in the Findlay Memorial Church in Glasgow. I thought that was wonderful. Well, God's word impacts people. And, you know, I came across a little quote about the book of James and I read it to you. It goes like this, there will be a recurring temptation to tame the powerful social message of this flaming letter, to domesticate it and calm its biting all too relevant message into palatable terms. If the message of James is allowed to go out unmuffled, it will rattle the stained glass windows. I really like that. Rattling the stained glass windows. It brings life and light in a very powerful way to us. So James uh, says in verse 1, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations greetings. Well, when you and I write a letter today, well, we probably mostly write emails, but when we write letters, if we write letters, we generally start off, dear sir or madam, and we finish with yours faithfully, or yours sincerely, or love, and we put our own name at the end. But all those years ago, the practice was to begin a letter with the signature of the person who wrote it. Maybe that was to help folks to decide whether they were going to read it or not. I don't know. But we remind ourselves that though a man called James is writing the letter, it's actually the Holy Spirit who is telling him what to write. So this book, though it has the name James, actually comes to us from the heart of God. And I think we need to read this letter, not as history, but as a love letter from God. So this is a love letter from God. Now do you remember what Paul said when he commended the Thessalonians in in the Thessalonian church? He said... In chapter 2, verse 13, we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. That's the way we need to accept the book of James as the word of God so as we approach this series of studies we need to be very sure that we're listening but not just with our ears because you see we can listen with our ears and we can think well I hope that old guy down the back I hope he's listening but we need to listen with our minds as well Lord what is it that you're saying to me How should this impact my life this week? Is there something you want me to change? Is there something you want me to do? So we're listening, but not just with our ears. So as we approach the epistle, we ask some questions. First of all, who was James? Who was James? Well, there are at least four men in the the New Testament called James. But per very... Sure, that this James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Now, did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Well, Mark chapter 6 tells us that. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. These were the people, of course, who didn't believe in him. But they tell us that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. And one of these half-brothers was a man called James. Now, it seems that James... Jesus' brothers didn't actually believe him they were what we would call unbelievers John 7 tells us that that even his own brothers didn't believe him i guess that Jesus didn't fit their mental picture of what god's savior would be would be like and after Jesus um rose from the dead there was a 40 day period when he appeared to various people we get a list of those in 1 Corinthians 15 and it says there that then he appeared to James then to all the apostles I'm interested why did he appear to James before the others could it be that James was in some kind of position of leadership after the ascension, we find James in the upper room in Jerusalem, praying with his mother and the rest of the disciples. So, James believed. He was also presumably present when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost, and he became ...the leader of the church in Jerusalem... ...and chaired what we sometimes call the Council of Jerusalem. So he was a real leader in Jerusalem. He was a late bloomer, but he he flowered well. I guess that James knew Christ as only a few could... ...because for years they'd eaten together at the same table... ...and shared the same house and played in the same places... Uh, watched the development uh, of his amazing older brother. I guess there were days when Jesus babysat and looked after his younger brothers and sisters. And when he truly came to know Christ, his boyhood privilege was not wasted. For he became known as James the Just, a man of immense piety. He used to go and pray a, a, a lot for the believers and I guess for other things too. So much so that that he, he got the nickname camel knees. I don't know if you've ever seen the knees of a camel. But they're all calloused because they kind of get down on their knees. So this man, James, had, had the nickname of camel knees. Because he spent so much time on his knees... Praying. What a man he was. Well, Paul calls him a pillar of the church in Galatians 2, and tradition tells us that he was martyred in AD 62. And it's said that the Pharisees were so angered by his testimony about Christ that they tripped him up one day and they beat him to death with clubs. And the story also relates that he died praying the words Father, forgive them for they don't know. What they're doing. So James was the person whom the Holy Spirit took and used to write this uh, epistle. Well, we ask ourselves, what kind of a man was James? Well, I want to tell you two things about him. First of all, he had a low view of himself. How do we know that? Well, how does he describe himself? He describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the word servant is actually the word doulas. And the word doulas means a slave. So here he was describing himself as a as a slave, now, under the influence of Roman law, a, a slave was really a non-person who was owned by another without rights, like any other form of personal property. and you could treat uh, a slave the way you treated a dog or a suitcase. If he didn't like it, you could just check it out or cut it to bits. Nobody would have said anything. And that alone makes it remarkable that James should be content with describing himself as a slave. But his choice becomes even more remarkable when we consider some of the titles that he could easily have chosen. After all, he could have written uh, James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And when Paul completed his final missionary journey and reported back to the mother church in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that the next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. So again, we have this uh, sense that that James was the standout leader. So James and all the other elders were present present a clear indication that James was the man in charge now he could have written to them and said actually I'm the Lord's brother and that would surely have given him a place above Peter and yet James called himself a slave of God and Paul writes in Romans 12 don't think of yourself more highly than you ought do not think of yourself more highly than you ought I wonder how we see ourselves. How we see ourselves. It is said that the mark of a great man of God is not that, the, that he thinks himself great, but rather that he thinks of himself as being utterly insignificant, other than the fact that God has delivered him because he is delighted in him. And don't we, aren't we told in Philippians chapter 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, that's the reality of his deity, did not consider equality with God, the equality of his deity, deity did not think. Can, blah, 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 I'm getting muddled up here. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Amazing, isn't it? That the Lord Jesus Christ. The glorious son of God should step as deity into humanity and make himself nothing. And Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that. The only person who had a right to assert his rights, waived them. And Paul in Corinthians writes about us. He says, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We don't belong to ourselves as much as we might like to think so. We belong to God. And Paul is using language here that would describe the purchase of a slave. The slave couldn't choose a master or dictate the terms of his service. The master did the choosing. And listen to the words of Jesus. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And perhaps that's something we ought to underline in our Bibles. That he has chosen us to be fruitful. And the fruit that he wants to see coming out of our lives is fruit that will last. I find it just extraordinary that God has given us the privilege of impacting eternity. Isn't that amazing? I have probably told you before I have this kind of dream or vision of what it will be like to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ, the Bhima, and to see his beauty and just a look in his face. Everything else will be just... We won't be conscious of everything. We'll just be looking at him. It'll be wonderful. I don't know how we're all going to be close to him, but we are. And I, I can... We're going to get new bodies, new voices. Hallelujah for that. And we're going to be like him. And we're going to look into his face. And I kind of think that I'm going to see laughter lines around his eyes. I don't know what the new body is going to be like. I hope I'm going to be a bit taller. Maybe a bit slimmer. That would be nice too. I'm not even sure if we have elbows. But just imagine we do have elbows. And just imagine. There we are. Before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of a sudden you feel an elbow in your side. And you tear your eyes away from Jesus. And you kind of don't recognize this person beside you but they you tear your eyes back to Jesus but then he nudges you again this person and says I just want to say thank you because you shared Jesus with me and that's why I'm here and I see all these folks I brought them with me that's the fruit that he's looking for from our lives and I know that you pray for the community and that's good you have to do that But you know, there's not room in this building for the community. God has never taken the go out of the gospel. We have to go out with it. And uh, Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you. You make a defense in response to to an accusation. And the accusation is, how can you live the way you do? You've had a bereavement. Why did you get smashed the same as everybody else? Or you've had a, a marriage breakdown. Why did you just take drugs and get drunk and all of that stuff? How can you cope? And the defense is, well, I have a God who helps me. I have a God who helps me. This is the fruit that God is looking for from our from our lives. So um, John Tells us there, you you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. How wonderful that is indeed. And I've lost my place because I've gone off tack just a little bit. I don't know if you've ever read a book called The Cricketer about a man called C.T. Studd who uh, was really involved in mission, went off to uh, China and then, latterly to Africa he, he was, I think he was at Cambridge he, uh, this was way back 1800 and something and he inherited a huge amount of money about 122,000 pounds which would be worth I guess several million today but he, he decided that he needed to do something and in writing in 1883 he said, I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I'd never understood that if, if he had died for me, that I, then I did not belong to myself. Redemption means buying back, so that if I belonged to him, either I had to be a thief and keep what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything for God. And he gave away his £122,000. When I came to see that Christ had died for me, it didn't seem hard to give up all for him. And he gave his life in serving God. So I want to say to you that James had a low view of himself. But he also had a high view of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, those three words, the Lord Jesus Christ, are interesting. The word Lord appears over 700 times in the New Testament. And sometimes it's used as an expression of respect for a person. But the vast majority of cases, it's used of God himself. So he sees himself as a servant of the Lord, of of God. And then he says, the servant of the Lord Jesus and this reminds us of the humanity of our Lord. And we know that he came as God, stepping as deity into humanity. We remember what the angel said to Mary uh, in Matthew's Gospel. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, uh, or James called himself a servant of God and of uh, of Jesus, and then of, of Christ, that's the third word. And that means the Messiah, the anointed one, the one God would send to bring salvation. You see, he had a high view of God, he knew what he was about. I think it's an extraordinary thing that, that God should look at people like us and view us as, as his servants, but he does in first corinthians it says he's chosen the weak to overcome the strong and the foolish to overcome the wise so i guess if i asked you to put up your hand if you felt weak and foolish and unable to fulfill the task i guess every hand in the place would go up but because god has chosen the weak to overcome the strong and the foolish to overcome the wise that means without exception we qualify as folks whom god can use if we're prepared to make ourselves available to him. So James had a low view of himself and a high view of God, and I think that's a pretty good example for us to have. A low view of ourselves and a high view of God. Well, we want to ask then the question, well, why did he write his epistle? Well, there are two answers to that. Obviously, first of all, he wrote because the Holy Spirit nudged him to write. But we know that each New Testament has letter, has its own special purpose. We know that Paul penned that first letter to the Corinthians where there were some problems in the church. Chapter 13 says love is patient and when we read through the epistle we found that in the church folks were being impatient. Uh, Love is kind Paul says. Well some of them were being unkind to each other. So Paul was writing this epistle and he was addressing live situations for them. He wrote uh, to the Galatians because the Galatians were getting hung up on legalism and were being confused by false teaching so uh, Paul wrote to them wanting to uh, sort out their confusion to get them back on the right track and as you read through the epistle of James you discover that these Jewish Christians were having some problems in their personal lives and in their church for one thing they were going through difficult testings anybody here going through difficult testings they were also facing temptation to sin. Anybody struggling with temptation to sin? Some of the believers were catering to the rich while others in the church were being robbed by the rich. So there was a real tension there. Church members were competing for offices in the church, particularly the teaching offices. You've heard of social climbing. Well, it was the equivalent of what we might call ecclesiastical mountaineering. Some folks wanted the top spot, and they didn't mind who they climbed over to get there. One of the major problems in the church was a failure on the part of many to live out what they professed to believe. Furthermore, we read that the tongue was a serious problem, even to the point of creating wars and divisions in the church family worldliness was another problem some of the members were disobeying God's word and were sick physically because of it and some were straying away from the Lord and the church and as we review this list of problems it doesn't appear to be much different does it for the the problems that many churches struggle with today do we not have in churches people who are suffering for one reason or another do we not have members of churches who talk one way but live a completely different way I, th- I think that the, one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel is Christians who are not living as Christians. I, I think they they bring the gospel into disrepute and really dishonor the Lord. And uh, isn't worldliness a problem in churches today? And are, not, are there not Christians who can't control their tongues? I remember hearing the story of the lady who went to the pastor and she said, uh, the pastor preached on a text about from James about the tongue and she said oh pastor I've been convicted can, 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 can you help me to lay my tongue in the altar and he looked at her and he said well my dear the altar isn't big enough for your tongue <laughs> it's a problem isn't it I guess if we stopped and asked the question every single one of us would have wounds or scars that are testaments to wounds that have been inflicted by careless talk from other people we, we will have experienced that well of course the root cause of all of these difficulties is the problem of spiritual immaturity big babies grown up babies big babies so James picks up on the marks of maturities all the way way through the letter and uh, someone has uh, said uh, that too many churches are play pens for babies and not workshops for adults so James gets up close and personal as he speaks candidly about issues which impact lives, our lives every day and I tell you as I go through this study I expect to be searched, stirred and shaken and I expect you to be searched stirred and shaken as well So we ask the question then, who was James? What kind of man was James? Why did he write? And then who did he write to? Well, he tells us to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, it's worth noting that love for Jesus always reveals itself in love for other followers of Jesus. A love for Jesus always reveals itself in a love for other Christians. Now, I know that we are described as being God's peculiar people in the authorised version. And we've said before that, yes, some of them are very peculiar. And I think the really peculiar ones are fairly evenly distributed amongst the churches to keep us all humble and trusting in God. But James clearly has a love for the Lord and a love for Christians. He was writing to the Jews living outside of Palestine. Well, why were they living outside of Palestine? Well, over the years, we know that God's people uh, weren't too interested in God. And God withheld blessing from them, allowed difficulties to come. And Palestine had been conquered and occupied. And the fact that God's people had been scattered was an evidence of the spiritual decline of the nation. But in verse 2, James addresses his readers as brothers. So he's writing to Jews who had become followers of Jesus. Now we know that after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, there was very powerful preaching. And what happened then? Well, we know that persecution came. God allowed those Christians to be scattered. Well, I guess some of them would have been praying, Lord, why is this persecution coming? This is awful. But God had a purpose. Like sparks from a fire shooting out onto a rug. Little fires were started all over the place. Because when the folks were scattered, they brought the reality of Christ with them. And they gossiped the gospel. Very much the same sort of thing happened in Southern Ireland where I come from. When I came to faith about 46 years ago, you could almost have named the the gospel preaching churches on two hands. And yet God reached out and saved lots of folks. And they they couldn't, forgive me here, they couldn't go to the Protestant churches because that was kind of counter-cultural. So they started little house groups. And the house groups tended to be run by the guys who could speak the loudest. But because they didn't have any kind of a trained leadership, very often they split. So one little church became two, and two became four, and four became eight, and eight became sixteen, sixteen became thirty two, so all Across Ireland, you have all these little churches now every county town which is absolutely wonderful so God had a great purpose and the point is this if we are Christians then these words are for us these words are for us and James starts his epistle by simply saying greetings what a great way to start the Greek word literally means rejoice. Now James will have some pretty straight things to say later on. He will, won't pull any punches when he's pointing out things that need to be put right in the lives of his readers. But he begins with a note of joy. And we need to remember that because this is wonderful because God loves us so much, he doesn't want to leave us as we are. He wants to change us. Isn't that amazing? He wants to make us like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's our response to all of this? Well, I, I would say that our response ought to be to get ready. Now James says partway through the epistle, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's a really good way to start. By just reminding ourselves, hey, we're serious about this. This is not just an intellectual exercise we're going to do on a Sunday morning so we can go away and feel good and get back to the party that's called life. We want to meet with God. We want to say, God, here we are. Will you come and shape us and change us, Lord? And make us into the people you want us to be. The power of heaven is available to us. Our problem is we can't often plug into it maybe just maybe it's because we've got a kind of our own agendas I have a, a friend and he started off his preaching by looking at Daniel do you remember weighed in the balance and found wanted in is it chapter 5 of Daniel and, and he started off by teaching God wants 50% of your life oh no God doesn't want 50% of your life God wants all of your life You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So I think we ought to make up our minds. Right at the outset. Lord we want to hear. And we tell you that we will obey. Before you speak to us. Whatever you say Lord. We're going to obey. Understand that whenever we're serious about spiritual growth. The enemy gets serious about opposing us, and perhaps you feel a need for more patience, then be prepared for more trials, because suffering produces perseverance. Maybe you've prayed the prayer, Lord give, Lord, give me patience and can you give it to me today? It doesn't work like that. The real examination in Bible study comes in the school of life, not in the classroom. I read a little while ago about a man who was burdened to grow in his patience and he knew that he was immature in that area of his life and he wanted to grow. So he prayed, Lord, please help me to grow in patience. I want to have more self-control in this area of my life. And that morning he went to the train station to catch to catch the train to go to work. But he missed the train. And for the next 50 minutes, he paced up and down the platform complaining of his plight. And as the next train to the city arrived, the man realized how stupid he'd been. The Lord gave me nearly an hour to grow in my patience, and all I did was practice my impatience. (laughs) There may come a time in this study when you may decide that continuing is just a little bit too dangerous. Satan may turn on the heat and make things a little difficult for you so that you'll want to retreat. Don't do it. Don't do it. When that time arrives, you will be on the verge of a new and wonderful blessing in your own life. A thrilling step to a new maturity. And even if Satan does turn up the heat, your Father in heaven keeps his almighty hand on the thermostat. Just remember that. So I want to encourage you to read the book of James. If you read it every day, You'll be surprised how God will bless you. And next Sunday, God willing, we're going to look at verses 2, 3, and 4. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and praise you for your grace, your love, and your mercy. We thank you that you have left us your word, which is so practical and so helpful to us, full of instructions, and we just ask, O Lord, that... You would help us each one so that we would each read the book. And in reading the book, that our hearts might be prepared to engage with it and you when we meet together, God willing, next Sunday. In the meantime, O Lord, may your loving hand be gently upon every head, bowed in your presence. We ask it, Father, in the precious and the lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.